Throughout the country, on lonely roads where young women have died, ghost stories have been born from their tragedy. In the early 1940s, folklorists Richard Beardsley and Rosalie Hankey cataloged these stories for an issue of California Folklore Quarterly, and the title of their article would give the phenomena a name, The Vanishing Hitchhiker. This season, we will track down these tales, step back through history, and sift through the unique details of each story to determine whether a real local tragedy has been interwoven with the familiar urban legend. I'm your host, Jason, and this is Epitaph. On rainy nights, near an old overgrown underpass just between High Point, North Carolina, and the suburban community of Jamestown, drivers often report seeing a young woman in a white evening dress, the kind worn to a formal dance. She desperately tries to flag down passing cars and, at least according to those that say they've pulled over to help, if you stop and offer her a ride, she'll climb meekly into the back seat. If you make conversation with her, she'll tell you her name. She's just been to a dance and needs to get home. She'll express concern that her mother will be worried if she doesn't get home soon. And the address she gives isn't far away. The farther you drive, though, the more distracted she seems to be, almost as if she's in a world of her own. And by the time you arrive at her address, she's gone. It used to be that, if you'd go to the door, a woman would answer. She would show you a picture of the girl you'd just driven home. She kept it in a silver frame near the door. And then she would tell you that the girl in that photo, her daughter, had died in a wreck near that overpass. The woman at the door is gone now. The address, if it's even still standing, has been forgotten. But some say, on rainy nights, the girl at the underpass is still waiting there, trying to get home. Nestled between the cities of Greensboro and High Point, the small town of Jamestown, North Carolina is the oldest permanent settlement in the Piedmont region. Though the area had been inhabited by Native Americans as late as the early 1700s, they had moved from the area when a group of Quaker families from Pennsylvania, led by James Mendenhall, arrived in search of productive farmland in the late 1700s. Mendenhall established a farmstead there in 1762 before continuing farther south to Georgia in 1775. His son George, however, remained behind and by 1816 had founded a village that he named Jamestown in honor of his father. The Mendenhalls owned and operated the first grain and lumber mills in the area and owned much of the land. By 1800, it had become a bustling settlement of 150 residents. It had its own post office and an inn. There was a lodge of Freemasons, a gun factory that manufactured the aptly named Jamestown rifle, and when gold was discovered in the area, several profitable mines sprung up. By the mid-1800s, Jamestown had become part of the Underground Railroad network, with many of the Quaker homes in the area having trapdoors and basements to aid escaped slaves on their journey to freedom in the North. The North Carolina Railroad Company began work on a rail line that would connect the Piedmont area to the coastal plain, opening the state for economic and industrial development. Work began at both end terminal points, one in Charlotte and the other in Goldsboro, and in 1856 they met just east of Jamestown. Six decades later, in 1916, when automobiles were becoming the preferred method of travel, the rail line was raised to accommodate North Carolina Route 10's run from Greensboro to High Point, and the road was routed through a narrow underpass. From the beginning, the route was dangerous. 
Approaching the tunnel from the west, traveling from High Point toward Greensboro, there was a hill that, when it was wet, was particularly slick. Coming from the east, there was a curve, and for a while, a section of that road that passed through the tunnel wasn't paved at all. When it was wet, cars would sink in up to their axles, and in the dark, motorists had to guess not only where it began, but where it met back up with pavement on the other side. The underpass itself was only 18 feet wide, with no side spaces or shoulder. And when it was finally paved, the situation actually got even worse. The previous surface had been macadam, basically a gravel road held together by dust in the compacted rock. When it was first paved, a simple layer of coal tar or hot asphalt was spread over the surface, effectively seal coating it but no additional gravel or sand was added to the finished surface to give cars any traction on it. In 1921, the Greensboro Daily News wrote that the innumerable procession of cars keeps the surface at a glassy polish, and that when the road was wet, it takes almost stunt driving to keep a car under control, and if by skill or luck the driver can control his own car, he is yet at risk of every other on the road. They said it was particularly dangerous to strangers who, being unfamiliar with the curves and the grades and driving on that type of surface, would drive into almost certain trouble on the road after rain. In 1926, the Highway Commission began work on improving the safety of the road by straightening it, eliminating the curves, reducing the grade, and altogether eliminating two hills that had obstructed the driver's view of the road. But the narrow underpass remained for another decade until work was completed on a new one 160 feet north of the old structure. The new underpass was nearly double the size of the old one, increasing the road surface to 30 feet wide with five feet of shoulder space on either side. During its 20 years of use, the old Jamestown underpass was known as the most dangerous spot on one of North Carolina's most traveled highways. And it didn't take long after it was abandoned for the new underpass for motorists to begin reporting encounters with a ghost. The earliest report of an encounter with the ghost at the underpass came from author Nancy Roberts in her book, An Illustrated Guide to Ghosts and Mysterious Occurrences in the Old North State. First published in 1959, 35 years after the event is said to have occurred, Roberts retold a story related to her by a man she called Burke Hardison. Burke said that in 1924, he was on his way back from Raleigh to his home in High Point after having spent the evening with his college buddies. It was foggy and well after midnight when he finally passed through Jamestown. He hadn't seen another car for quite a while, but he was still straining his eyes to look for taillights in the fog. As he approached the underpass, the fog seemed to clear a bit and near the side of the road, he saw a young woman. She was dressed in a white dress and when she saw his car approaching, she flung her arm upward to signal him to stop. When he pulled over, she asked if he could help her get to High Point. He said that's where he was headed and that he'd be glad to help. She gave an address on a street that he was somewhat familiar with, but she rode mostly in silence. As they got closer to High Point, Burke tried to make conversation with her. He said her words seemed almost detached and so faint that he could barely hear them over the sound of the motor. He said that she gave her name as Lydia and seemed to be upset at the late hour, afraid that her mother would be worried about her. He gathered that she'd been to a dance that evening in Raleigh, but whatever happened that led to her being left standing beside the underpass, she wouldn't or couldn't say. She seemed to get annoyed with his questions, so he stopped asking them. 
He found the street that she had given him, and then the house on the corner, just as she had described. He got out and walked around to the other side of the car, but when he opened the door for her, his car was empty. He stood for a moment, stunned, before closing the door. Deciding that she must have slipped into the house without his seeing her, he walked to the door and knocked. It was several minutes before an older woman answered. He introduced himself to the woman and said that he had just brought her daughter home. He said that she seemed to have disappeared and that he just wanted to be sure she'd gotten inside safely. The woman didn't answer him right away, but he could see tears welling up in her eyes. He explained that she'd stopped him at an underpass back in Jamestown and begged him to bring her home. The woman nodded. Lydia had been her daughter, but she died in a wreck at that underpass a year before when she was on her way home from a dance. She told Burke that he wasn't the first to bring Lydia home, but she just never quite gets there. Not only was Burke Hardison not the first to see her or drive her home, he also wasn't the last. On July 17, 1938, John Mumbain of the High Point Enterprise ran an article telling of two young men on their way back from the theater in Greensboro encountering her. Just after passing the Guilford County Sanatorium, they rounded the curve toward the underpass, and without warning, their headlights fell on a woman standing beside the road. In this version, though, she wasn't dressed in white. She was wearing a polka-dotted suit and held a large pocketbook under her arm. The young men pulled over and offered her a lift. They said that she was talkative. She gave a name, but that isn't reported in the article. She gave them an address in High Point, but that isn't reported either. At some point during the ride, though, the young men noticed that she stopped participating in the conversation, so one of them looked back to ask her a question, and she was gone. Alarmed, the young men went to the address she'd given and rang the doorbell. A middle-aged woman answered, and when they asked if the girl they'd picked up lived there, and in the article they seemed to have known both her first and last names, the woman replied that she was her daughter, but that she'd been killed in an accident near the underpass on the High Point Greensboro Road. But that wasn't the end of the story. According to the article, the two young men weren't the only people to have encountered her that week. Other motorists, at the same spot near the Jamestown underpass, had seen the same woman, always with the same big pocketbook under her arm. Several reported having picked her up only to discover that, after they'd driven a short distance, she would be missing from the car. Those who checked at the address she'd given heard the same story from her mother. And the article named the names of those who had encountered her, Craig Howard, Millard Howard, and Roy Paget. A man named only as Mr. Payne said that he had encountered her on the way back from a baseball game. Their stories had spread to the point that, the night before the article was published, more than a dozen cars were parked along the side of the road, full of people hoping to catch a glimpse of the ghost. The reporter published several of those names too, Mr. and Mrs. Lawrence Grissom, Mr. and Mrs. Arthur McMahon, Miss Polly Starrett, and Miss Eddie Stoner. The next day, though, the paper printed something that approximated a retraction from one of the witnesses, and alongside it, a follow-up story. Roy Paget said that for the past several days, his phone hadn't stopped ringing with strangers calling to ask about his encounter with the ghost. He said, I've gotten up from dinner, breakfast, and lunch to answer the phone. Every time, it's somebody wanting to know about the ghost woman. One morning, someone even called at 6 o'clock. Then he added, I've never seen the ghost woman, and I don't expect to. Beside that, another article ran explaining that the people who'd gone to see the ghost the previous night had indeed encountered something, but it wasn't what they'd expected. Several young men, having heard about the ghost woman, had decided to use it as an opportunity to play a prank on their friends. One of them dressed in a sheet and went to the underpass, while the others convinced their friends to drive out and look for the woman. 
When they arrived, their friend appeared from the woods, his sheet flapping eerily in the moonlight. What they hadn't planned for, however, was that there would be others stopped and parked near the underpass looking for the ghost. When he came out of the woods near the underpass, several of the other car's occupants gave chase. Some of them hurled rocks at the figure in the white sheet, and as he fled into the woods, he got tangled up and stumbled. Thankfully, he confessed to the prank before there was any bloodshed. The earlier story, though, had begun to spread. A columnist named Colvin Leonard told it in the Greensboro Record on July 22nd. A few weeks later, on August 19th, another report of an encounter with the ghost woman appeared in the Greensboro Record. While driving to the city lake in High Point, Jack Friedman and his girl, who wasn't identified in the paper, claimed to not to have seen the girl, but to have heard her. Friedman wasn't familiar with the story, but his companion was. She related to him, adding that now the girl's anguished cries can be heard near the underpass. I did not see a soul anywhere on the highway, Friedman said. The front of the car had just entered the underpass when we heard it. It was a little after 8 o'clock, and I'll never forget it. The mournful crying was a new addition to the story, and something that would set it apart from the typical vanishing hitchhiker legends. A week and a half later, another report of the ghost woman's cries was reported. A woman called the paper and, after making Colvin Leonard swear to not publish her name, said that a crowd of us were returning the other night between 9 and 10 o'clock from the High Point Lake where we'd been on a picnic. Our young niece was in the car, and the conversation drifted to the ghost girl. Well, just as we drove into the underpass, my husband let out a yell. We all jumped, but that reaction was nothing compared to the heart fluttering that came the next moment when we heard one of the most unearthly screams imaginable. One thing certain, it wasn't one of us women in that car because we were not in a screaming mood. The girl at the underpass's next appearance was in a conversation at the Elkin, North Carolina Tribune. Staff, including writer Alan Browning Jr., were prepping the paper to be sent out late one Wednesday night when the conversation turned to ghosts. Someone told her story, this time involving a motorist on his way from Charlotte to High Point. The young man sharing the story said he'd heard it from a friend of his father's, swearing it to be true. Browning concluded that the story had all the earmarks of the truth and noted that it appeared in the Charlotte Observer some time ago. In November of 1941, in a retelling of several vanishing hitchhiker legends by Sandy Jarenko in the High Point Enterprise, she wrote that the hitchhikers are an extremely well-groomed ghost, appearing in Ohio in a black evening gown, and in High Point in a white one. That is, as near as I can tell, the first time in the legend in which she's said to be wearing a white dress rather than the polka-dotted suit carrying the large pocketbook. Not long after being mentioned, if ever so briefly, Another sighting of her was reported, and this time, she was seen by the columnist himself. In the rain the other night, he wrote, we were riding along the High Point Road and the car was rounding the curve near the new underpass, which lies hard by the old underpass, when the lights fell squarely on the girl. She wore no coat and her hair was streaming in wet strands from her bare head and her pallid face was like a mask of death. That much all of us agreed on. And then the car straightened on its course and the lights went away from the spot where she was standing and everybody in the car was quickly silent, frozen as if by sudden command. But in a brief moment, the man at the wheel had emitted a low whistle, expressive of a thought struck home. That, he said tensely, must be the ghost girl, the girl that I've been hearing about for years. Well then, said the man, I move we turn around and go back to see if she's still standing there. We haven't gone more than a mile, hardly that far, and there hasn't been a car along since we passed. 
And so we turned around and headed back, the rain beating in heavy sheets against the windshield and the wipers click-clacking and groaning furiously against the attack. But it was time wasted. Nobody was standing in that spot when we returned, although somebody had definitely been there before. The ghost girl of High Point Road, as phantom-like as the stories about her, had disappeared again. That seems to be the last mention of an encounter for almost a decade, and an article in the High Point Enterprise in 1953 noted that, but for a report by State Highway Patrolman Charlie Pierce, no one had seen the girl at the underpass in years. Pierce said that his encounter had occurred about three years before, placing it sometime around 1950. He had been on a routine patrol when he noticed an old car pulled off on the shoulder of the road near Jamestown. He got out and investigated. The driver, he said, was a carnival worker, passing through the area when his car had run out of gas. He noted that there was a very well-dressed young woman sitting in the front passenger seat, but he didn't want to be meddlesome, so he didn't say anything about it. Pierce drove the carnival worker to the gas station to get a can of gasoline, but by the time they got back to the car, the young lady was gone. Pierce asked who she was. Beats me, the man said. I saw her hitchhiking at that underpass back there, so I gave her a lift. Pierce was unfamiliar with the ghost legend at the time and said that he spent nearly an hour looking for the girl, but he never could find any trace of her. After someone told him the tale, he was convinced that he had seen the ghost. But aside from Pierce, there hadn't been any new first-hand reports of seeing the ghost since World War II. Several locals were worried that the oral history of it was being lost. Most people had quite simply forgotten about her. The writer said no one interviewed was able to even set an approximate date as to when the wreck had happened. Several said that they had a vague recollection of a bad accident near that spot, but they're not too sure about it. And of course, the name of the girl, where she lived, who her companion was, and other details are completely lacking. Maybe the accident did happen, he continued. Maybe people have seen the ghost. Whatever the case, there are now only ghostly remains of what was once a first-class ghost story. By the time the story reappeared five years later, it had changed almost entirely. Late in the summer of 1958, in the Sunday Telegram, Paquita Fine told the legend, this one shared with her by a lawyer, who, based on the similarities in the way their stories are told, I believe may have also been Nancy Roberts' source, Burke Hardison. He told the story that he was on his way back from having just finished up a big case in Raleigh, when his headlights flashed briefly on the old overgrown underpass. Running towards him from the dark recesses of that underpass was a girl with silvery blonde hair. She was a real live doll, he says reflectively. Had on a sort of glittery white evening dress. Man, she was something. Well, I figured she had some trouble with her date, and it sure wasn't a night to be out walking, so I offered her a ride. She smiled pretty as you please, got in and directed me to an address in High Point. When we got there, I hopped out and went around to open the car door, but she wasn't there. Not in the car or outside of the car. She'd vanished. Well, sir, it worried me and sort of made me mad. So I marched up to the house and banged on the door, big and loud. The old lady who opened the door had the saddest eyes I've ever seen and kept insisting that no one had entered. That's when I got really upset and started telling her that I knew I had picked that girl up and I knew that I had brought her to that address. Only thing I couldn't explain, even to myself, was how she vanished so completely. I was really ranting, then all of a sudden I saw tears sliding down that woman's wrinkled old cheeks and realized she was trying to tell me something. It seems her daughter had been killed in an accident at that underpass one rainy night back in the 20s, as she was returning from her first party. Ever so often, especially if raining, someone picks her up and brings her home. But, said the woman softly, she never quite gets here. 
Fine's article mentions that the ghost had been seen since 1920, which not only places a firm date on the story, but, as near as I can tell, may do so inaccurately. It predates the first contemporary report of a sighting by more than 15 years. Fine also added the sad note that the lovely ghost has not been seen since World War II, perhaps because there is no longer anyone for her to return to at the old home. Then, in 1959, Nancy Roberts' first book was published. And despite their differences from the earlier versions of the story, differences that, in some respects, turned a unique legend into a run-of-the-mill reiteration of the vanishing hitchhiker legend, this is the version that stuck. But, as interest in the story was reignited, reports of encounters with her began appearing in the newspapers again. One Tuesday night in late June, Frank and Lillian Fay were taking some friends back to High Point at almost midnight. We were driving toward High Point, Fay said, and I turned to the others and said, Did you see that? The others apparently hadn't. That girl up there, trying to get in that car, Fay explained. His wife thought he must be seeing things, but she was familiar with the story of the girl at the underpass. Well, Faye said, her hair was long and stringy and it was all wet, and it looked like she was trying to get to the right door of that car ahead as it drove through the underpass, but the car didn't stop, it just kept going. All of the newer stories follow the typical vanishing hitchhiker story beats, and somewhere around the late 1950s, about the same time Burke Hardison shared his version of the story, Lydia had lost almost every feature that made her tale so unique. His story and the other more recent reports of encounters those told on local radio shows and such, seem to relegate her to the standard blonde in a white party dress common to the vanishing hitchhiker legend. It was the details that were lost that were the parts that made her story believable. Things like the polka dotted dress, the large pocketbook, the house being on a corner, and, more importantly, the witnesses sharing both the first and last name, later redacted, with the reporters. So what's the truth of this story? Could Lydia have been real? And if so, who was she? Though it's probably the most widely known, as you may be able to tell, I have a few problems with Nancy Roberts' version of the Lydia legend. First, it's not a contemporaneous report. The story was written down and published nearly 35 years after the event supposedly took place. Unfortunately, as a result, I feel like the story may have been influenced by time and by the urban legend that it so closely mirrors. Second, Nancy Roberts changed the story, and we don't get to know what all she changed. Burke Hardison isn't a real name. Though it certainly isn't unheard of for authors to change the names of witnesses in these sorts of stories, changing details without stating that she did makes me question just how many of the other details of the story were changed or embellished. And third, Roberts was writing her book more for entertainment than for accuracy. She didn't likely waste any time thinking that, 60 years later, someone like me would be investigating the story and wondering what the truth was. She probably just wanted a story that people would remember and share the details with their kids. After all, that's the way folklore works. But those issues lead me to recognize other problems with the story. For example, Burke Hardison supposedly told her that part of the reason why he'd spotted Lydia was that he'd been straining to watch for taillights in the fog. Now, taillights had been invented and patented by then, yes, but they weren't what we think of when we think of modern brake lights. Really, they were more like our modern turn signals. For one thing, they were manually operated. Back then, most drivers still used hand signals to indicate when they were planning on turning. But those weren't 
particularly useful in the dark, so taillights filled that role. Back in 1924, when Burke Hardison says his encounter took place, taillights weren't even required on cars. On most cars, they weren't even a standard feature. I get wanting to make sure you don't run into something in dense fog at night, but he must have been particularly cautious to be so carefully watching for something that, on most cars, didn't even exist yet. So was this a historical inaccuracy? Was it an embellishment? Was it part of the story when Burke was sharing it with Roberts, or did she just make it up herself to flesh out the story? It was also in Roberts' story that we first get a name published for the ghost, but the conversation that led up to the girl giving her name isn't recorded. Did the girl tell Burke that that's what her name was? Did he add that detail in later? Did he not get that detail at all, and Roberts named the girl herself? With details that are known to have been changed, there are too many issues with Roberts' retelling of the story for me to give it much weight when it comes to research purposes. So for those reasons, I'm going to have to set it aside as interesting, but not necessarily accurate, and focus instead on the newspaper reports, particularly those early ones when looking for Lydia's identity. I began the research for Lydia in the most obvious place, the underpass at Jamestown. As I've mentioned, the underpass itself and the road leading to it on either side, known alternately as High Point Road, Main Street, Route 10, or the High Point Greensboro Road, depending on which direction you were approaching it from, was notoriously dangerous, and for good reason. In researching the story, I found and cataloged more than three dozen automobile accidents. These accidents resulted in nearly 80 reports of injuries ranging from simple bruising or being shaken up to fatal injuries that occurred at the underpass in the 20 years between when it was built in 1916 and when the new underpass was constructed and the highway was rerouted in 1936. Of those, the majority of the people injured, 48 of them, were men. Seven of these men died either at the scene or as a result of their injuries. Some local paranormal investigators claim to have heard male voices on EVPs collected at the underpass. And I guess it would make sense that if Lydia is still there, it could stand a reason that one of these men who died could be there too. But, as I thought it was reasonable to assume that none of these men were Lydia, I filtered them out. That left about 30 other reported injuries. And of those, only four had proven fatal. One of those names on that list might be familiar if you followed recent developments on this legend. In 2016, a local news channel ran a story about the underpass and a local author and ghost hunter by the name of Michael Renegar, who had believed the mystery had finally been solved. Renegar had discovered an article from the Greensboro Patriot dated June 21, 1920, about a fatal car crash that had occurred the night before. According to the article and several others that would follow over the next few days, Charlie Cross, Nettie Lethko, and Annie Jackson were riding together in a car driven by J.C. Hutchinson on their way from Greensboro to High Point around 10.30 p.m. when, on a rain-slicked road, their car overturned. Hutchinson was badly shaken up, but left the scene to go find a telephone and call for help. Cross was taken to a hospital in High Point, where he had a severe gash across his head stitched and bandaged, but he and Nettie Lethko were both treated and released. Annie Jackson, however, wasn't so lucky. She was likely killed almost instantly, and her death certificate states that she was dead upon arrival to the hospital in High Point due to a skull fracture. Renegar did a significant amount of research on Miss Jackson, including tracking down one of her nieces who revealed that her middle name was Luda, after her maternal grandmother, Saluda Haithcock. Luda sounds an awful lot like Lydia to those unfamiliar with the nickname. 
But, as Annie Jackson was one of the few women who died as a result of an accident at the underpass, we'd already found that same article and had retraced many of Runniger's steps, ruling out Annie as a possible candidate. Why? Well, from the earliest contemporaneous report of an encounter in 1938 to Nancy Roberts' first book in 1959, every encounter with Lydia has had one common factor. She asks to be taken to High Point. Annie Jackson, despite all of the other details that could plausibly fit with the legend, didn't have a connection to High Point. Annie lived in Greensboro at the time of her death. She spent most of her life there. Her family had also lived in Greensboro. Her mother had passed away more than a decade before. Her father had died a few years before her too, both in Greensboro. So, had people continued on to whatever address was in High Point, they couldn't have possibly been met at the door by Annie's mother. Renegar has an explanation for that. He reasons, she's on the side of the road as if she wishes to be taken to High Point. Of course, Annie realizes we're going the wrong way again, and she disappears. But, to be honest, that just doesn't resonate with me. If we're to believe that Lydia is something more than a legend, I don't find it reasonable to conclude that, in all of the versions of the story that have ever been recorded, she asks to be taken to the wrong town, and then, after realizing that she's going in the wrong direction, simply disappears out of frustration. If Lydia didn't die in a car accident, though, there could be a different explanation. Just after 7 p.m. on the night of March 19, 1916, Southern's number 43 passenger train had just left the Jamestown station on its way toward High Point. The trains were usually full on Sunday nights, but were even more so on this particular night because a large number of people from High Point, Thomasville, and other nearby communities were returning from having seen a production of The Holy City at State Normal College in Greensboro. After letting off and picking up passengers in Jamestown, the number 43 was running a few minutes behind schedule. Regular freight number 74, though, was making good time and passed the passenger train on a parallel track. Just as it did, one of its cars derailed. The first car to leave the track was loaded with lumber. It clipped number 43's baggage car and knocked it on its side. Propelled by the train's momentum, the lumber broke free and its logs and planks bombarded the two passenger cars. The weight of a full tank car right behind the lumber finished the job of turning the passenger cars into kindling. It took out the side of the first car it hit, collapsing its top. But according to newspaper accounts, the second passenger car was crushed like an eggshell. News of the wreck was sent to High Point in Greensboro, and trains were dispatched to Jamestown carrying doctors and stretchers. Family and friends of those who'd been known to be on the train that night rushed to Jamestown too. The platform and waiting room at the little Jamestown station were used to triage the wounded before placing them back on trains with the doctors to carry them to nearby hospitals. Hazel Hyatt had gone with her stepsister and several friends to see the Holy City. She had been sitting next to the window when the freight train derailed. According to the newspaper report, both of her legs had been broken, both of her arms too, her hip was crushed, and her face was cut by the shattered window glass. The papers reported that though she had survived the initial impact, she was so mangled that doctors couldn't find a spot on her body in which to inject the hypodermic. Even so, despite the severity of her injuries, she was awake. In tremendous pain and conscious, she knew she probably didn't have much longer. Her husband, Mac Hyatt, had rushed from High Point to be with her. She was glad to have been able to see him one last time, but she wanted to see her parents too, to be able to say goodbye, to tell them that she loved them, and to tell them not to worry about her. She was placed on one of the express trains back to High Point, 
but she didn't survive. Hazel Hyatt died of her injuries at approximately 1.30 a.m. on Monday, March 20, 1916. She was buried in the Oakwood Cemetery in High Point, North Carolina. She was just 23 years old. Hazel was survived by her father, John Henry Hedgecock, her stepmother, Sarah, two brothers, Ray and Basil, a half-brother, John Henry Jr., a half-sister, Doris, and her stepsister, Treva Cook, who was on the train with her at the time of the accident. Her mother, Julia, had died nine years earlier. She was also survived by her husband, Mac, to whom she'd been married for just two years prior to her death. He was beside her on the train back to the hospital. Two young men were on their way back from the theater in Greensboro on a Sunday night. It was foggy as they passed the old Guilford County Sanatorium, and when they rounded the curve toward the Southern Railroad underpass, their headlights fell on a woman standing beside the road. She was wearing a polka-dotted suit and held a large pocketbook under her arm. She motioned to them, trying to flag them down, so they stopped. She gave them an address in High Point and asked them if she could be taken there. They agreed. They said she was talkative. She gave her name. She'd been to a show in High Point, too, she said, but not the same one they had. She'd gotten into an accident on the way back from Greensboro, and now she just wanted to get home. She didn't want her mother to worry. One of the articles we'd referenced mentioned that the girl at the underpass hadn't been seen since around World War II, perhaps because there was no longer anyone for her to return to at the old home. And I think that that sad reflection is probably right. Sarah Hedgecock, Hazel Hyatt's stepmother, died in 1943. Her father, John Hedgecock, died just a few years later in 1947. And her husband, Mac Hyatt, who'd been by her side when she passed, had himself passed away in 1951, which was right around the same time that she was last seen in the front seat of a carnival worker's car, trying to get home one last time. Epitaph is an independent, bi-weekly podcast. If you like what you've heard, maybe leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you may be listening, and maybe tell your friends about us. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can find us on the web at epitaphpod.com. You can also find us on Twitter at, at @epitaphpod, and by searching for Epitaph Podcast on Facebook. If you've got a few extra dollars, consider joining our Patreon. There you'll get access to Epitaph, the others, our special subscriber-only shows, and we've got a few extra things in the works there, too. This episode was researched, written, edited, recorded, and produced by me. I'm your host, Jason. Thanks for listening.